sponsored by CuriosityStream, less than $12 a year and Nebula for free for a limited time. Ooh, okay. Yes, in this video, we are starting off 2021 right, digging into what's next for Apple in the new year in a way only you amazing, sizzlingly smart people could come up with. Your questions, I'm reading them out and answering them live. And as always, members over at patreon.com slash Rene Ritchie have Q&A priority. But if you have anything else to ask, to follow up on, to just wonder out loud about, hit that subscribe button and bell so we can hang out in the comments and chat just whenever a new video goes live. Now, let's do this. Landon McSorley on Patreon asks, there are rumors of an M1 iPad Pro. Could we see a hybrid iPad Pro running iOS in tablet mode and Mac OS when docked on the Magic Keyboard? And I think that's probably the beautiful dream machine for nerds everywhere. Uh, you know, that we can just use it like an iPad when we're holding it in our hands, but slap it onto that Magic Keyboard and it turns into a full-on Mac. Implementation-wise, it would have to run both operating systems. And that, I don't wanna say it's a challenge, but it's something that Apple would have to implement. For example, the highest amount of RAM currently on an iPad is six gigabytes on the iPad Pro. The lowest amount of RAM on a Mac is eight gigabytes, and that's on all the entry-level Macs. And the kind of apps you'd want to run on Mac OS would need, if not for everybody and not for every app, certainly, but for some apps, especially for the kind of nerdy apps that nerds who want this kind of hybrid solution would want to run, would probably have much higher RAM demands than eight gigabytes, you know, 16 gigabytes at the very least. And you just know, just know that we would want more. So to make it truly a great experience as an iPad and as a Mac, it is probably one of those things that sounds great theoretically, but if you were in charge of implementing it, would just have so many steps and so many years and so many constraints or limitations imposed on it. I don't know if it would end up being any better than a discrete iPad that is just the best iPad possible and a discrete Mac that's just the best Mac possible. Joshua Karp on Patreon asks, curious when you think the next 16 inch MacBook Pro will be out. I have the current one Max, but want the Apple Silicon. And yeah, I mean, you and me both, that is the machine that I have been waiting for. That is the next InstaBuy Mac on my list. Just everything I want in a Final Cut Pro, mobile Final Cut Pro machine. And of course, Apple could release it at any time. Over the last couple of years, we've seen them just announce new Macs in press releases and do briefings on them, and then they're, they're just out. Otherwise, they do have events like the March event, uh, WWC in June, and the October Mac event, where traditionally they've debuted the more high-profile new machines. I do think the 16-inch MacBook Pro will be next on the list. I think Apple will do the higher-end 13-inch MacBook Pro the 16-inch MacBook Pro, and at least the lower end, the 21.5-inch, or if it gets bumped up, 24-inch iMac will be the next round of M1X Apple Silicon Macs. The only question to me is if they do redesigns or not. If they don't, uh, I think they'll be announced as soon as they're ready, event or no event, because we've already seen sort of the big Apple Silicon kickoff. So they can streamline these a lot. But if there are new designs, if there is anything that involves, for example, Face ID and even less bezels on the MacBook line, 
or an iMac that looks more like an iPad Pro, just ultra thin, squared off industrial design, that sort of thing, then that to me at least begs for an event. And we're looking at that March, maybe more likely WWDC in June, uh, or hopefully not as long as, but also uh, a Mac event in October. Rod Gray on Patreon asks, could Apple release an updated Apple TV with an M2 chip inside it, let Arcade be a place where AAA games can be played, and let Game Pass and Stadia work with it as well. And I'm not sure about M1 or M2 specifically, because M1 is a variant of the A14, what we would expect to see in an A14X already with just those extra Mac bits in it. And an M2 would likely be an A15, what we'd expect to see in an A15X. So whether Apple labeled it an M chip or Apple just left it as an A chip, I think that sort of thing is just purely the economics of how they fab it and what IP they choose to use in any given device and finally a marketing decision. But the rumors have been that we would see an Apple TV maybe with an A12X chip, similar to the previous generation 2018 iPad Pro, or a full-on A14X, which is assumed to be going into the next generation iPad Pro, depending on how high-end Apple wants to take the next generation Apple TV. And of course, the higher end they take it, the more expensive it becomes. And that's sort of the real question here, is Apple previously worked on a higher-end Apple TV when they had this whole future of TV as apps thing, but they didn't think anybody would pay for it. They didn't think anybody would pay for the latest current generation silicon and all the other bells and whistles inside an Apple TV box. So they went with something a little more conservative, and that's what they've stuck with. And an A12X chip would absolutely deliver that. They could do much more complicated HDR compositing. They could handle the latest generation of Apple Arcade games. And I'm with you 100%. I think one of Apple's big failures in 2020 was their short-sightedness over game streaming services, which I anticipate to be as big as video streaming services. They are indistinguishable in in an implementation point of view from Netflix or Disney+. And Apple allows those onto their platform And they don't require that Disney Plus or Netflix list all of their content in iTunes. So I think it's just incredibly short-sighted the way they're approaching uh, game streaming. It should just be available the way Netflix or Disney Plus is available. And I'd love to see that on every one of Apple's products. I think that would really next level every one of those products, but especially the Apple TV. If Apple, instead of saying, oh, we're going to, you know, highly constrain how these services can run would just say, we're going to make sure these services run best, better than any of the devices, whether it's, you know, Xbox games being played better than Xbox or Stadia games being played better than on any Android device. Just make, do what Apple does when they don't make the hardware. And that is make whatever service is running on it run better than any other hardware. And then the only other thing is the cost, because if they do step up to an A14X, if the other rumors are true that Apple is targeting higher-end AAA games, maybe eyeing some game studios, that is going to be a more expensive box. But then Apple is going to have to deliver value that goes with that expense. They're going to have to deliver more of the kind of value that people are willing to pay Xbox or PlayStation prices for. I think that is a big question that Apple has to answer for themselves before we see any of these products. Cole Hellman, what do you think of the rumors about Apple's plans with future AirPod models? What features could they add to the AirPods Pro besides better battery life? So just like the iPhone has taken on jobs that were previously for the Mac, 
and the Apple Watch has taken on jobs that were previously for the iPhone, I think we'll continue to see the AirPods take on jobs that were previously for the Apple Watch. And maybe that won't start with the AirPods Pro. Maybe that'll start with something bigger like the AirPods Max. But I think direct internet connectivity is one obvious step first maybe through Wi-Fi and eventually through cellular connections so that we can stream Apple Music or Spotify or Audible or just any audio programming at all directly to the device the way you can with the HomePod and not even have to go out, for example, on a jog, on a walk, on a short trip, not even have to take an Apple Watch with us anymore. And the same way you could see them offloading health sensors, things that can do the basic fitness um, qualitative quantitative life aspects that the Apple Watch does now, but just have them checking our pulse, checking all those things through the ear connection rather than the wrist connection. And then just slowly, they take on more and more of the Apple Watch, force the Apple Watch to take on more and more of the iPhone. The iPhones take on more and more of the Mac. And that's sort of the beautiful, virtuous uh, cycle of Apple product life. Sharif on Patreon asks, my Apple Watch can unlock my Mac, give admin privileges on my Mac, unlock apps on my Mac, but it can't unlock my iPhone. Why would Apple lock iPhone users out of that convenience? So there's actually a simple, quasi ludicrously simple answer to this. And it's not that Bluetooth trusted objects are inherently insecure. I mean, with the Apple Watch as a trusted object, at least you're wearing it at the time. It's not just some random object somebody could pick up and pretend to be you with. Uh, And Apple already uses it, like you said, to unlock the Mac. So even if you were to use it to unlock the iPhone and your iPhone was on a table and someone else picked it up, because it's such close proximity to you, just like you would notice them picking up your Mac, you'd probably notice them picking up your iPhone in an unlocked state. It is a slight security risk, but the convenience probably overrides that for most people. But the actual reason is The Apple Watch can't unlock the iPhone because the iPhone already unlocks the Apple Watch. And it's been that way since Apple announced it, since the very beginning. If you're wearing your Apple Watch and you unlock your iPhone, your Apple Watch will also be unlocked. And that's because Apple wanted to reduce the amount of times that people would have to fuss with tapping in a passcode to the tiny, tiny keyboard on the tiny, tiny screen of the Apple Watch. So they figured this would just be a way more convenient way to do it. And because the unlock chain is flowing from the iPhone to the Apple Watch already, it is non-trivial to make it also flow from the Apple Watch to the iPhone, to have your iPhone unlock the Apple Watch and then your Apple Watch unlock your iPhone right back. Uh, It's sort of paradoxical, maybe an infinite loop. And Apple could probably implement some elaborate switching system that would check the states and you know, sort of flip the security valves back and forth. But I can't help but believe that when you get to levels of complexity like that, you start to run into just huge opportunities for potential exploits. So for now, it really just is that simple. Your Apple Watch can't unlock your iPhone because your iPhone is already unlocking your Apple Watch. But if you just hate that idea, think it's completely stupid and should absolutely be going in the other way, let me and Apple know in the comments. Kwame Purier on Patreon asks, do you have any idea how a future Mac Pro can retain the advantages of an all-in-one SoC but still be modular? I actually did an entire video just thinking out loud about how you do exactly this, how you have all the advantages of the SoC, but the modularity that everybody expects from a Mac Pro. And I'll leave a link to that in the description below. So just check it out and let me know what you think. Kwesi Wabit Hankins on Patreon asks, 
maybe not in 2021, but do you see Apple creating a YouTube alternative? So that's a really interesting question. And I look at it sort of the way I look at the rumors of an Apple search engine where Apple has a lot of the elements already in place. In that case, you know, the Apple bot that already scours the internet looking for you know information for the Siri knowledge base and also things like search, like what it was all classified as spotlight search previously and app store search, all of those things. You know, and we can argue about how poorly they're implemented often compared to Google's versions, but they have those underlying technologies. They are much better at the foundations of video. All of the you know, frameworks that are in iOS and macOS that let apps like iMovie and Final Cut Pro and third-party apps create video on uh, the iPhone, the iPad, the Mac, but they don't have any of that infrastructure for hosting and presenting videos the same way they don't have it for hosting or presenting a search engine. And I think in the case of video, it's even more complicated. And Apple, certainly they've had the podcast directory for years, but that is just a directory. It points at RSS feeds and audio and video files that are hosted elsewhere. And you know everyone on Apple Podcasts pays to host their own audio and video files, which is you know the primary reason there's no video version video podcast version of this show because it is just prohibitively expensive to host the video files that I make, the 4K video files that I make almost daily. And YouTube gives that all away for free. And to put all that infrastructure into place, all that hosting, the ads that support all that free hosting, uh, or even a payment system, some way to pay for that, which I think, again, would be prohibitively expensive. And then the social infrastructure, which Apple did not do well with everything from Ping to Apple Music Connect. I think Apple probably would like to provide more privacy-friendly alternatives to whatever services it can. But I think when you start to get to something, the scale of YouTube or even Instagram, doing it the way they're being done now is probably a non-starter, at least for now. And doing it in another way, doing it you know, as a, as a more personal private hosting service still requires just a lot of thinking around how you architect it and how you pay for it that I don't think Apple is in a position to answer at this point. But ultimately, it's, it goes back to that famous saying where there's a thousand no's for every yes. And the only way you get to that one yes is by saying those thousand no's. And I think this is just one of those things that Apple will keep saying no to and less than until they can find something compelling that they could do that would be both really beneficial and really disruptive. And it's just really hard to see what that is right now. Craig Duran on Patreon asks, where will Apple go with augmented reality in 2021? And I think the answer to that is just more of what they've been doing over the last few years. It seems inevitable at this point that their end goal is an augmented reality operating system, whether that's ROS or it ships with a different name, that'll be applied to things like Apple Glasses, but probably much more widely, sort of like how Apple has applied display, whether it's LCD or OLED, to phones, to tablets, to watches, to uh, computers. Apple will have an augmented reality operating system that it will apply across a range of products, probably from the absolute lightest product they'll ever make, uh, you know, well, I guess until they make cybernetics, but things like glasses to the heaviest products, which may be, you know, an Apple car in the future. Just the ability to superimpose data and interface on top of the real world is absolutely compelling. And 
they have been systematically making it better and better since the introduction of ARKit 1, where they could kind of sort of place objects in the real world till now, where they are so well anchored in the real world. We can see demos where they look like real-life objects that we are manipulating the way we would any object in real life. So I don't know exactly what the breakthrough will be this year, but I'm guessing it will be exactly more of that. Kirby and Blue, do you think Apple will drop the price of the iPhone 13 next year to $699, like how the iPhone for most people last year, the iPhone 11 was $699? The iPhone 12, the price for those, the cost for those, how expensive it was for Apple to make those went up considerably uh, compared to the previous years when they had LTE modems and LCD displays, the bill of goods, and I'm not talking about the ones that you see floated out that seem to act like all you need is the mineral components to fabricate an entire phone. Like if I dumped a bunch of parts in front of you, you could just put together your own iPhone. I mean, the actual cost of manufacturing, of sourcing those products went up considerably when they went from the old LTE Intel modems to the new Qualcomm 5G modems and from the old LCD displays to the Samsung and LG OLED displays. And there were rumors that Apple was trying to mitigate that by using you know, BOE displays instead, which have traditionally been cheaper, or at least BOE has been willing to sell them for cheaper, sort of keep the price down, but they weren't good enough quality for Apple. They couldn't use those. So they were stuck uh, with the higher cost LG and Samsung displays. And that's what was driving up the cost of the base level iPhones. And I don't anticipate Qualcomm or Samsung or LG uh, having a huge willingness to drop those prices on Apple. Qualcomm has a near monopoly on 5G modems at this point, and they will charge everything they think they can extract. And OLED, we know, still comes at a huge premium. So I, I really want those prices to come down. I think $699 for the base level iPhone is just the perfect price point for those. But I don't expect them to come down unless or, and until 5G pricing and OLED pricing comes down or Apple switches to their own modems or to their own micro LED displays that they can better control the cost or at least the markup on. Terry Ruiz says, after M1, M1X or M2 CPU variants, would Apple reveal their first modem in 2021? And how will it disrupt the industry beyond bringing home tighter integration and reduced costs? Again, another beautiful, beautiful question tie-in. So I think 2021 is too aggressive a timeline for an Apple modem. Apple did you know, buy the Intel modem team, which was originally the Infineon modem team, and they're working on that. And part of their settlement with Qualcomm was licensing all the patents that Qualcomm has around 5G technologies. So sort of how Apple went from licensing ARM reference designs for the early iPhone and iPad chipsets, the A4 and the A5, to just licensing the instruction set architecture, the ISA, to make their own custom CPUs for the A6, the A7, and so on. I think Apple is licensing Qualcomm modems, the X55 for the iPhone 12, the X60 for the iPhone 13, for now, as they build up competency quality and all the other validations they need for their own custom modems. And then over the next three, four years, at some point, we'll hear them announce it's a completely custom modem, still uses Qualcomm licensed IP, of course, built specifically for the iPhone and iPad, eventually the Apple Watch, the Mac, maybe you know AirPods, Macs one day, more and more things. It'll give Apple the same ability to do what they've done with 
their custom silicon, but at the radio level. Tarasi on Twitter asks, what would 2021 bring to the Apple Watch platform to make it more capable and bring more users? Would a redesign drive upgrades? So I think the first part of that is actually way more important because with the Apple Watch, unlike the phone, which is near saturation, where most people who want a phone have a phone, the vast majority of people still don't have a computational watch. The market for the Apple Watch is still wide open. So I think Apple is less concerned about driving upgrades. I mean, they would absolutely want any upgrade they can get for sure. But I think they're less concerned about driving upgrades than they are getting people into the Apple Watch ecosystem to begin with. And I think the strategies are different there, where certainly there are features that they could add that may be barriers of entry, you know, why somebody hasn't gotten an Apple Watch already. And I think things like the always-on display were a, a, a really good indicator of that. You know, Some people would say, why would I get a watch that most of the time doesn't even function as a watch because the display is off? And you know, always-on display answers that. And there's probably people who just want to be able to have an Apple Watch regardless of whether they have an iPhone or not. So a fully independent Apple Watch would be another really good example of that where you could not just go out uh, with an Apple Watch and do everything that that Apple Watch needs. Absolutely no iPhone necessary, but you wouldn't even have to own uh, an iPhone. You could do everything on the Apple Watch by just owning an Apple Watch. That's probably the next big feature set. A lot of people both inside the Apple ecosystem and especially outside the Apple ecosystem are waiting for. Manica JJ on Twitter asks, will my Apple Pencil ever get supported on my phone? It would be so nice to be able to just note or use it for editing a picture. And yeah, I feel this so much. I was always a huge fan of Samsung's Galaxy Note line for just that reason. It was the most portable Wacom tablet I'd ever seen. And I would love, like all caps, love Apple to bring pencil functionality at least to the max line of phones because the screen is so big. It really is like a tiny tablet. And you know, Apple has almost certainly had this in the labs for years. They just haven't decided to ship it. And whether or not they think they need a smaller pencil or some next generation improvement in either the iPhone or the pencil tech, I don't know. But I really, really, really hope Apple decides to add that at some point because it would be a super, super compelling feature, even if only on the largest, the max sized iPhones. Nullgrad85789 on Twitter asks, where in your opinion did Apple drop the ball in 2020? Which area should they focus on in 2021? And oh... Oh, so many things. Uh, I think the the biggest one is the charger in the box. I think Apple, you know, they made their case. They said it was for environmental reasons. But I think the messaging really didn't land at all. People just saw they were getting an iPhone without any easy in-the-box way of charging it. I mean, Apple's logic for including a lightning to USB-C rather than lightning to USB-A cable in the box is that they assumed most people had USB-A cables already, but that if you had a USB-C charger, you probably, or you might not have a lightning specific to USB-C charger. So that would be more useful to more people than just another lightning to USB-A cable. And I think, you know, fair enough, if you, they know their numbers way better than any of us do, but just not having that charger at all, especially when, you know, the, if you bought a, a MagSafe charger or a MagSafe Duo, which was incredibly expensive, you didn't even get a charger with that. It starts to create a very un-Apple-like experience where you get a product that you can't actually use. Like you can take it out the box, it's got a minimal charge, but if you're not aware there's no plug in the box, 
or you just can't get one, you know, within, especially in 2020, within a few hours of needing one, that is just deleterious to the experience that we've all come to expect from Apple. And now we've seen, you know, Samsung and Xiaomi go from making fun of it to copying it at whiplash-like intensity. And it it feels like a company as smart and resourceful and as good at experience design as Apple is could come up with a better solution for handling this, even if it is just making sure that when you buy a charger, that charger has a plug in the box. Brett on Twitter asks, could we expect to see Apple bring Mac apps to the iPad with Mac OS universal binaries? And this has been a big question. I mean, we had Catalyst, which was a way for developers to bring their iPad apps to the Mac and turn them into fully functional Mac apps. And now you can just run iPhone and iPad apps on Apple Silicon on M1 Macs. And people are wondering if the reverse could be true as well, if there could be a reverse catalyst for developers to optimize their Mac apps for the iPad or just something similar where Mac binaries that are compiled for Apple Silicon could just run on the iPad as well. And the answer to all of this is yes, but with some caveats. One is what kind of experience would they deliver? And also what are the steps that would be needed to implement them so they could deliver it? For example, a lot of Mac apps are written in AppKit, not in UIKit. And Catalyst was not just a way to bring iPad apps to the Mac, it was a way to bring UIKit to the Mac. And Apple hasn't announced anything that's a way to bring AppKit apps to the iPad. So Apple would have to implement all of that on the iPad side in order for developers to more easily make iPad optimized versions of their Mac apps. And if they don't, if they just let the Mac app run on the iPad, it'll be even worse than the current not very good experience of running iPad apps on the Mac. And especially if you have very small mouse pointer style touch targets, tap targets, click targets on Mac apps, things that expect the precision of a mouse pointer, those will be difficult to handle at best on an iPad. And again, you also have the differences in things as basic as memory. The most memory available on an iPad is six gigabytes and the least memory available on a Mac is eight gigabytes. And trying to run a full-on Mac app, especially Mac apps that are designed to handle very large files and projects on an iPad with those kinds of memory constraints may just be non-starters to begin with. So it's one of those things that could absolutely be done, but Apple would have to do a lot of things to enable it to be done well. Ming asks, will Apple support 5G in dual SIM mode in 2021? And that is really a Qualcomm Question. People on iPhones have only had to deal with 5G and the Qualcomm X55 modem for a couple of months, but people on Android have had to deal with it for almost a year already and all of these sorts of things. And I think Qualcomm would like to tell you it's supported. They will love to put it on their brochure and on their spec sheet and yell about it on social media. But I think if you ask vendors, it's just not anything that works yet. And there's been rumors that Apple has been pushing Qualcomm to deliver this. And I'm sure Samsung and other vendors have been pushing them as well. But it's it's really something that Qualcomm can't just announce as a feature. They actually have to deliver everything throughout the stack that makes it work. And again, my understanding, and please correct me in the comments if I'm wrong, and there is a phone where the Qualcomm X55 modem is actually doing this already, please let me know 
But my understanding is that that is entirely up to Qualcomm. As always, you can find the full extended version of this Q&A up on Nebula. That's the streaming platform I'm building along with my education-y creator friends, awesome people like Legal Eagle, Sarah Z, Ali Abdal, Thomas Frank, Braincraft, Polymatter, just so many more. It's a place where we can put up extended bonus content without having to worry about demonetization or the tyranny of the click-through rate or watch time or the algorithm or even ads. You can find full-length versions of my chats with iJustine, Jonathan Morrison, John Gruber, Walt Mossberg, and more. And all of them, all of my videos are completely ad-free. And that includes Apple Talk, my new psychology of technology podcast with psychotherapist George Adal, which has a bonus topic available exclusively on Nebula. So I know what you're thinking. What does any of this have to do with CuriosityStream? Well, they are just the go-to source for the absolute best documentaries on the internet. And they love, they love educational content and thoughtful creators. And so we worked out this deal where if you sign up for CuriosityStream with the link in the description, not only do you get CuriosityStream, but you also get a Nebula subscription for free. And for a limited time, CuriosityStream is over 40% off for the holidays. That's less than $12 a year and an even better best deal, just the best deal in streaming. So click the link in the description and get CuriosityStream for over 40% off and Nebula for free. Or go to curiositystream.com slash Renee It's a great way to support this channel and educational content directly for less than $12 a year. Click the link in the description or go to curiositystream.com slash Renee And clicking on that link just really helps out the channel. For a ton more on Apple in 2021, click on the playlist above. I'm doing in-depth analysis, previews, and lots more. So click on that link and I'll see you in the next video.